Good morning. Let's pray. Father, may my words be your words. May our ears be open to hear. May our hearts be softened to repent. And may our lives be constantly growing in our faith and bearing fruit as those of mature Christians. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. When I was single, there were three of us girls who were pretty tight. And we did a lot of things together. We were together so much that we um, heard all of each other's stories multiple times at social gatherings. So um, one night we were at a party, and one of the three started telling a story that two of us had been involved in, not the storyteller. But it quickly became apparent as she was telling the story that she had heard it so many times that she thought she had experienced it too (laughs) and had adopted it as her own truth. So I say that to say over the last few months, I have uh, read many commentators, I've listened to many sermons, I've scoured articles and talked to ministers and lay people. So inevitably, I have absorbed ideas and concepts that are not my own, and um, I may likely feel that they're my own by this point. So that's why there's the lengthy list of the village that I give credit to, because at this point, I'm not sure where the thoughts um, are pulling apart from theirs and mine. And I say that in, in full disclosure to the recorded audience, that they'll know these are not all my original thoughts. Um, Now, moving on to Hebrews. I don't know about you guys, but one of the challenges in studying this book for me has been to constantly remind myself that this is one continuous letter. And um, this is a pause this week in the middle of that. Last week, we studied the beautiful explanation of Christ as our high priest. And next week, we pick that topic up again. However, this is a parenthesis this week. The author has stopped in the middle to address a serious issue in their lives, their immaturity. Until he's corrected this, there's no point in continuing on. He has to go into deeper matters of the faith. It's as if he's ready to put a roof on, but they're still at a foundation. They don't even have walls to put a roof on. There's nothing there except this foundation. And a foundation is meant to be built on. You can't do anything really with it if it doesn't have structure on it. So you can't live in it. You can't work in it. It doesn't provide shelter. It's not fulfilling its true purpose. And these were not new Christians. He's not telling them, though, to become ordained ministers. He's saying you should be able to instruct others that are coming behind you in the faith. What would our church look like today if we did this? If we were constantly teaching someone newer to the faith than we? It would revolutionize the church. The author knows these people well and obviously knows this is an intentional sluggishness. They know better. God designed the world to mature. A seed becomes a flower. A puppy becomes a dog. An acorn becomes an oak. A girl becomes a woman. The reality of our salvation is built on our maturing. What does our immaturity look like? What does life look like when we're not holding on to our promises? When we are presuming upon grace? 
Maturity is seeing Christ in proper relationship with the world. We live in a society where immaturity is celebrated. Maturity is seen as odd or being an old fogey. (laughs) We live in a culture that doesn't like to think about aging or death which is the reality we must all experience, sadly. But um, immaturity seems to be the natural way to go. Even in the church, it can be a junior high world. We can easily not recognize when things are shaping us to be more immature or to stay immature. Some churches are intentionally dumbing down phrases that we think are hard for people to understand or will be offensive in today's society. Instead of setting the pace for elevating and educating the culture. One example some of you may have heard is the line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount. There's a phrase in the hymn which says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, which refers back to 1 Samuel 7:12. We studied that a couple of years ago. When God gave a great victory to the Israelites, and Samuel erected a stone and called it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. Some modern churches have felt this is an outdated phrase and for current generations is actually a distraction because it brings to mind the famous character of A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, as they're singing the hymn. The substitutions vary from here by grace your love has brought me to here I raise to thee an altar. The change may seem harmless, but the songwriter included that word for a reason. It refers back to a specific scripture, not a general concept. Gary Parrott, an educator, wrote about this, um, about the new phraseology. This single word ushers the worshiper into both the biblical episode and the greater narrative of God's redemptive dealings with his people. He's inviting us to reflect upon our own stories and to remember God's faithful dealings with us. By removing that word from the hymn, we likely remove it from a believer's vocabulary and from our treasury of spiritual resources. I protest as a Christian educator, what we have in such revisions is the worst sort of contribution to biblical illiteracy. Our faith is filled with names and terms that were unfamiliar to us when we joined the family, like atonement, propitiation, Sabbath, Passover, and Melchizedek. (laughs) What are we to do with such terms? We teach. How difficult would it be to simply explain the reference to Ebenezer? Problem solved. We teach. We have to examine our own personal devotion life and ask ourselves, are we dumbing down our practice of study? If I come across a word or concept I don't know, am I looking it up or wrestling with it? Or am I using that time and brain power to browse Facebook, look at a magazine, or watch TV? Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but if they hold luster for me, which oftentimes they do, over God's word, then I have to start asking myself questions about my own willingness to mature. We are meant to mature. When I joined Fort Worth PCA nine years ago, I had been in church all my life. I thought I'd been studying the Bible and thought I knew a lot about scripture and the Christian life, but I really knew little. 
I realized that I had fractures in my foundation and I certainly had no walls. I was not ready for a roof. The more I learned, the more I understood I didn't know. Not only that, but I was a totally different type of student. One who had been spoon-fed for decades as if that were a good thing. Most of my instruction had come in 15 to 20 minute sound bites of topical study, reflecting the culture's idea that no one today can listen for more than 15 minutes, and it had better be an entertaining 15 minutes. <laughs> Theology or doctrine was reserved for only the most serious of students. I, like many of you who came from other places, only had part of the story. In essence, I thought the story of David and Goliath was telling me to be braver. Abraham and Isaac was about trusting God to provide for me. That the story of the Israelites taught about my own human nature. I only had part of those stories. I had the stories, but I only had part of the stories. I was immature and I didn't know it. I had spent the last nine years trying to catch up. And I'll be honest, at first it was very hard for me to discipline my mind to listen and study on the level that this church runs. <laughs> I have always loved school and learning, but unwittingly, I, like a lot of Western students, was taught to study for the test instead of life. I would study, 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 take the test, and then move on to the next test. That may work great for one Bible study class, but not for long-term learning of theology and doctrine, which is the knowledge that changes the minutia of each day. On a recent NPR broadcast, I learned of a study by Jim Stigler that resonated with me. He gave an unsolvable math problem to groups of Japanese and American students. The group of American students worked with it for an average of 30 seconds and gave up, saying, We've never seen this problem before. On the other hand, the Japanese students worked for the entire allotted hour without stopping. This is not a commentary on East versus West education systems because both are flawed, have their flaws. But in this particular area, it speaks volumes spread over a lifetime. My husband and I have had several conversations about how lives, our lives might have been different had we been taught in this way. We both can point to activities in our childhood. We know we quit, like piano, French horn, guitar, basketball, etc., because we didn't master it right away. There was no concept of embracing the struggle. It was more of a move on and find something you're good at philosophy. Stigler's study went on to say that Japanese teachers consciously designed tasks that are slightly beyond the capabilities of the students so that the students can actually experience struggling with something just out of their reach. Once they are finished, the teacher points out what the student was able to accomplish through their hard work and struggle, not knowledge. The assumption is that knowledge will follow the hard work and struggle. All of this matters. You may be asking, why does this matter? <laughs> All of this matters because the way you conceptualize the act of struggling with something profoundly affects your actual behavior. Obviously, if struggle indicates weakness or a lack of intelligence, it makes you feel bad, and so you're less likely to put up with it. But if struggle indicates strength, 
and an ability to face down challenges that are inevitably going to occur when you're trying to learn something, you're more willing to accept it. I realize I do the same with scripture and Bible study. Oftentimes I'm studying for that week's discussion, but not the life-changing big picture. If it gets too difficult, I put it away for another day and may or may not skip that section the next day, hoping that's going to come up in the discussion later. <laughs> and that It's hard to make that transition from my church history to this church culture where doctrine and theology are discussed constantly. When I first came to the church, I would be in Bible study classes where there might be a discussion about a doctrine for 15 minutes, and I would honestly think, what is the big deal? (laughs) Can't we move on? I was so of the mindset, just tell me what's on the test. Tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to check off in the Christian walk. And let's quit just sitting around analyzing everything. Now I realize the importance of interpretation and how that meaning trickles down to living out the moments in a day. I now know we all live by doctrine, whether we call it that or not. We all have a set of beliefs to live by. The reason we need to study scripture to have correct doctrine is that is what you tell yourself in the details of the day. What you tell yourself when you're in the hospital with a loved one, watching him or her die, knowing it's largely due to mistakes made by a medical team you trusted, that's doctrine. When the lifelong dreams you've held so dear and trusted God wanted for you too to never materialize, and you watch them like the mist of the mythical city of Brigadine fade as life ticks by, what you tell yourself, that is doctrine. When evil breaks through your everyday routines in a very tangible way, robbing you of your innocence, your trust, your confidence, what you tell yourself when a nightmare wakes you up and a flashback pierces your alone moments back to that, that event, that's doctrine. That's why it's important to struggle through the maturation of the Christian life and not forsake studying God's word alone and with God's people. Because doctrine is what you are speaking into your life and the lives of others every day. Two-thirds of the New Testament is straightforward doctrine. The other third is doctrine couched in narrative. From the first word to the last, whether narrative or poetry or prophecy or epistle or apocalypse, the Bible is teaching. How willing are we to learn? Doctrine is important. It's important to know the truth and to take responsibility for what we know because none of this is about us. None of what I just listed in that list is about us. It's about God and his redeeming purpose in our lives. And what we tell ourselves is, in essence, what we tell others with our words or our actions. Do I stand before you knowing all the answers? No, hardly. 
I'm the least likely one to be speaking to you today, except this is me. When I was preparing to lecture, my heart was pricked by my laundry list of excuses as to why I'm not farther down the road in my knowledge of theology, doctrine, or my desire to teach and instruct others. Sometimes we see this as scholastic knowledge, moving in acuity, like you start out with the children's storybook Bible, you then may read putting amazing back into grace, then on to R.C. Sproul, and then you end up interpreting the original Greek. We're talking about an intimate knowledge of the one whom we say we love, we say we serve, the one to whom we say we belong. I can't tell you what's keeping you from maturing in the faith. The Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. But I can tell you I had to examine which things are ever so slowly eating away at my time and keeping me from the last spoken, life-changing word of God? What's distracting me from meditating on his eternal promises? And what am I turning to for solace instead of my heavenly father? I am choosing sluggishness and immaturity in so many ways every day, some tiny, some big. My exhortation to us would be, if you are way down the road, Remember, remember to have patience for those around you catching up. Constantly define words like sanctification, doctrine, atonement, adjudication, righteousness, Ebenezer, and yes, Melchizedek. (laughs) But don't stop using them. Please don't stop using them. There's a depth to them a connection to the church's history and a richness that only those words convey. And to those of you who are like me, have come to the church with a cracked foundation, no walls, standing on what you believe to be true, but you're hearing things tossed around that you've never heard before, take heart. Take heart, ask questions, look up words, struggle, and grow through the struggle, knowing that you're on a journey. And know that you have something to offer someone coming behind you on the journey. You are not just learning a new language. You are learning a new culture. And that culture incorporates truths on a daily basis that will transform the way you think, relate to others, garden, shop, study, react to traffic, cook dinner, play with your kids, Make decisions, everything about you. Now, continuing with this passage, there's another detour within the parentheses (laughs) where the author brings up serious warnings about those who've fallen away. I trust you thoroughly discuss these in your small groups, but in addition, on the handout on the back, I've provided... Paul Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Man in the Cage, which is based on Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. It is a sobering tale. I I encourage you to read it. It's definitely worth the read. But with that said, I'm moving on to the end of our section. I'm going to recap. First, the author chastises them for being immature. 
and not teaching others in the first section and moves to the warning about those who have tasted God but fell away. And then he moves on to encouragement. We expect better things for you. So he's saying first, correct this. Secondly, beware of this. Finally, take comfort in this. That is, have hope in Christ and press on with this assurance in Christ. And to discuss the last section, I'm simply going to tell a story that I feel captures what the writer is saying. Last year, my little two-and-a-half-year-old niece, B, was a flower girl in a wedding. Um, some of you moms may relate that the mother had much um, fear and anticipation of that, <laughs> a two-and-a-half-year-old as a flower girl. But we arrived for the rehearsal of this outdoor event, and there were no chairs set up, no barriers. It was just a wide open green space with a meandering sidewalk down the middle and a bunch of adults in street clothes on one side. There were no identifying markers for an energetic two-and-a-half-year-old to recognize that this rehearsal was any different than any other picnic, play date, or party she had attended in a park. So she was running free, enjoying the undefined outdoors, and totally perplexed and annoyed when her mom was trying to corral her and make her walk down the sidewalk to go stand with a crowd of adults on the other side. Needless to say, um, meltdown ensued. <laughs> and the next day, we dressed to be in her very special, fluffy, big girl ballerina dress, and we held our breath. <laughs> that day, though, things were different. There were roped-off areas, rows of white chairs with guests. My niece was given her very own special basket filled with soft rose petals, the bride looked like a fairy princess in a beautiful gown. All signals to be that this was no ordinary day. Things had changed overnight. It came time for B to make her entrance. There she stood with her mom, out of the crowd's line of sight, in her beautiful new dress, holding her basket full of petals with anticipation. There was obvious fear in her face about what was about to come. When her mom whispered, be brave, be, just keep your eye on daddy and walk toward him. When she rounded that corner, we all saw the visible change. She locked eyes with her dad. She squared those two and a half year old shoulders with confidence and threw that head back <laughs> and started down the sidewalk with assurance beyond her years. Once she was clothed in the appropriate clothing, had defined boundaries of where she needed to walk and what she was there to do, it totally transformed her thinking. The things that had held her attention, been confusing or distracting, no longer had a hold on her. All that mattered is she got down that sidewalk to her father. Ladies, you can see where I'm going with this. Let us square our shoulders with all the confidence of knowing we have a high priest and our identity is in him. He has given us his word to define our boundaries out of love for us. May we encourage each other to know more of him through digging deeply in his word. 
May we put away childish things, recognize that we are clothed in righteousness, and strive to follow him. Only through knowing his word can we know the depths and richness of his character and love for us and are assured of the hope we have in him. Let us be brave. Keep our eyes on our heavenly father and walk toward him in maturity and faith and confidence that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. I'd like for us to close singing the chorus of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus together. <laughs>